just want to warmly welcome you to Brisbane's most elaborate and ornate sauna, free of charge. <laughs> Great to have you in the building this afternoon. I was preaching down this morning in Cool and Gatter at our church there, and uh, if they've got anything on us, it's that they've got air conditioning. <laughs> and so if anyone wants to know what it looks like to take up your cross and follow Jesus, it definitely includes this. Um, women in leadership. I thought I might kick off with a bit of an illustration. During the Second World War, the German government, they sponsored an effort to unify Protestant churches into a pro-Nazi church. Big deal. Big, big deal. Second World War, pro-Nazi church. But some church leaders in some churches got really suspicious of this move from the government. They were concerned that the churches and the Protestant churches that would support Nazi government would idolize the nation state and that they would confuse the rule of the Fuhrer with the sovereignty of God. And so what they did is they formed a movement called the Confessing Church, led by none other than a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose name you might have heard before. And the Confessing Church, they protested uh, the Nazi regime. They gave safe housing to the disadvantaged at the time. Remember, it's World War II. They underwent severe persecution. But most importantly, they were a church that pastored people through one of the darkest moments in human history, the Confessing Church. And one of the stories of a particular pastor that survives, the story that survives, that is, it's a story of a lady named Ilse Fredriksdorf. We don't know much about her, but a book published, I think it was 1946, it's a book published about the New Testament. In the preface to that book, it tells a bit about her story. Ilsa, she was a pastor, she came to faith in the Confessing Church, she studied theology, um, she went to study theology in Basel, Switzerland, under a guy named Karl Barth, which if you're a theolo- like your church history buff, you'll know that's a big name. Um, she was someone who was equipped, called and celebrated as a pastor. And then um, this particular quote tells a bit more of her story, and I just want to pull out one little snippet. It says this about her. It says that she was so much in demand for her pastoral skills that the major of the troop repeatedly requested her aid among the troops. Later, she led the displaced congregations with the word of God, went back to the hunger zone as much as possible, and after she had buried hundreds of the thousands who perished, she succumbed herself to salvation and death. Ilsa, she was a female pastor in the confessional church, and she was used by God at a time in history to push forward the kingdom of God and bless the world for the glory of God. God. And today, we're talking about women in leadership, and particularly we're talking about women in church leadership, because that's the question we want to ask when we ask this question of women in leadership. I want to revisit Elsa in a moment, but before I do, let me just acknowledge that even as I start to speak on this topic, there's going to be a number of different reactions in the room. Maybe you hear that I'm going to address this topic, and you get nervous. You get nervous because you've thought about this topic, and you have a position on this topic, whether for or against And you're nervous, not because I'm going to talk about it, but because I might misrepresent your position as I talk about it. And you could be on either end of the spectrum of this debate uh, when you come to think about this topic. You could be nervous today. Others of you, though, you might be excited. And I'll be honest, I'm a little bit excited. I really like this topic. But you might be excited because you've longed for the day where women in leadership is not just something we give lip service to, but we speak into substantively as a church. You might be excited today. You might be dumbfounded at the prospect of a sermon on the question of women in leadership. Why? Because you might not be a Christian in the room today, you might be from any faith background, and you might be like, what the heck? Women in leadership? Do we really need to address that in the 21st century? We had a female prime minister in 2012 for crying out loud. We clearly know that women can lead. You might be dumbfounded by the possibility of us proposing this question today. 
You might be actually not those things. You might be angry or sad um, because this is a topic which, no matter if I'm a male or a female, the fact that I'm addressing it as a male itself raises questions. Like, if we really believe in that which I'm going to give voice to, wouldn't it not be better to have someone else preach into it? It's a bit of a catch-22, but wherever you're coming from today, I just want to acknowledge that each of us have different reactions, even right now. I just want to invite you to be honest about those reactions that you have, to join me on this journey, and think of this not as a monologue that you walk away with and aren't able to ask questions about, but as a crucial conversation that we begin. Um, This topic, it's emotional, it's complex, it's dense, and it's something on which the church not agrees but disagrees. And that's the very reason to lean into it and talk about it and try and provide some pillars and handles and clarity about how to move forward with it, not just in the idea world, but practically in the life of this church. Um, It's something heavily debated. And to boil it all down, there's sort of three basic positions. And sure, there's more. There's more nuanced positions. But And I won't use the technical terms. But there's three basic positions that people have when they come to think about this topic. The first position is that some people think that women can't be in any form of pastoral leadership. The second position is that... um, People think that women can be in pastoral leadership so long as it isn't the role of senior pastor, ordained minister, or elder. And then other people think that God calls and equips both men and women equally into pastoral leadership so that there should be no office or role in the church which a woman can't fulfill. Very different sides of the debate. I hope to represent each of them accurately. But here's why this is interesting. It's interesting because you hear a story an incredible story of incredible ministry done by an incredible woman named Ilse Fredriksdorf. And you have to conclude one of three things. You have to conclude that she's either an example of disobedience to what the Bible talks about, that she's an exception to the rule given grave historical circumstances. No men were around. Maybe we'll get a woman to do the job. She's an exception to the rule. Or she's, a, she's the expression of the very life that the Bible gives trajectory for and the model that God would invite us as his church to embody. And here's, just to be honest, I've had all three views in my life. I've held all three views in my life. When I was studying at Bible college, I was asked the question by an essay. I had to write an essay on the question, should the church allow women to be pastors? And my answer to that question at the time was no. It was no. I did all my due diligence, I researched the scriptures, I read every passage that I thought was relevant, I talked with trusted mentors, I read books, I I got my head into the game and I concluded, no. I submitted my paper, got a HD, thank you very much. (laughs) But I concluded that women can do ministry, yeah, but they can't be in pastoral leadership in any significant way because that God reserves something special for the church. That was my opinion at the time. Five years ago, though, I began to change my mind. This sermon's kind of the journey I took, but before I get there, let me just put up front what I've changed my mind to. Now, I don't think that women are an example of disobedience if they're in pastoral leadership at any echelon of church leadership. I don't think they're an example of disobedience. I don't think they're an exception to the rule. I think they're the very expression of that which God has always given trajectory for in the scriptures and what God by his spirit has always been wanting to call into being in the church. Which is why when I came to look for a pastoral role in Brisbane, New Life was a theological home for me. It got me really excited about New Life because as a church, we fundamentally believe that God calls both men and women to shepherd, oversee, teach, 
lead and be disciples in God's church. We do not think that there is any echelon of leadership out of bounds for women. We do not think that there's particular gifts that God reserves by his spirit only for men. Church leadership, in other words, is not qualified by particular chromosomes, XX, XY. It's qualified by the gifting of the spirit and the mission of God in the world. And God calls all people to partner with him in that at all echelons of church leadership. And today, I just want to talk through some of the things that helped me change my mind. Because my goal here is not to give you, again, the last piece of, um, the last piece of content in a, in a monologue. It's to open up a conversation, but also be very honest about what we think is a church family. And two, provide you with some handles so that you can take the next step in your thought life about this, or maybe even in your practice of the gifts that God's given you, particularly if you're a female. So what helped me change my mind? One, the pull of biblical evidence. And two, a passage which I reread. The pull of biblical evidence and a passage which I reread. So first, the pull of biblical evidence. When I was preparing two weeks ago, the, the struggle that I had with this sermon was, was not sort of scrounging around for evidence, trying to think about how I can make up, you know, two hours of content for a Sunday. I'm kidding, 40 minutes of content for a Sunday. The problem I had was not that. It was actually, what do I leave out of this kind of sermon? How can I fit it all in? Because there is a plethora of women models and women being celebrated in the scriptures for the kind of ministry they do, particularly at a leadership level. Let me give you three examples. The first one is women prophets. Women prophets named in the Bible. Let me name a few of them for you. Miriam, there's Moses' older sister. Deborah, who leads Israel as judge and prophet in the Old Testament. You've got Huldah, who at the time, King Josiah, one of the famous kings of Israel, he's putting Israel through a bunch of reforms, and he consults with Huldah to seek the word of the Lord. Huldah's a prophet that the king himself sought counsel from. There's not just Huldah in the Old Testament. There is Isaiah's wife. There's Anna, who prophesied about Jesus in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. There's Philip's daughters, identified in Acts 21. And even in 1 Corinthians 11, which a lot of people wheel out as a defense against women prophesying and teaching in the church, it itself, when Paul puts boundaries around prophecy in the church, it assumes that women themselves are prophesying. There's women prophets in the Bible. Now, this is why, here's why this is important. It's important because the going definition of prophecy is that it is the declaration of the word of the Lord. That's the going definition of prophecy, particularly in biblical times. It's a big deal. And the reason that's a big deal is because some people want to say, sure, women can prophesy, but they can't teach from the pulpit with the scriptures authoritatively. They'll, they'll, they'll draw a dichotomy between those things. But here's the problem with that. If you say women can't preach from the pulpit authoritatively with the Bible, you're saying that women can declare the word of the Lord with prophecy, but they just can't use the Bible to do so. And when I went to Bible college, the task that my lecturers gave me is not to get up on a Sunday and articulate my subjective experience of God, not to get up on Sunday and tell you my latest best trend fashion, I just read John Mark Homer, so here's a digest. My job is to unpack the scriptures faithfully because they are where we find life. And so it's a dichotomy to say that women can't, women can't teach with the Bible, but they can prophesy. They're actually more organically linked in the scriptures. Moving on, women prophets, moving on. Take Paul's, the way that Paul celebrates women in his letters, Philippians and the book of Romans, and all his co-laborers in uh, the New Testament. There's a lot of females, actually. Uh, and in Romans 16, Paul sends his final greetings to the churches in Rome, and in it, Paul commends the ministry of women more than men. 
Now, that's not a model for us, just FYI, but it is to show us that if you've read Romans 16, you might not have realized that a lot of the names listed are females, and that what Paul does with those female names is he celebrates their ministry. It's to point out that Paul celebrates the ministry of women and men. But I want to pull out two special mentions from this list. Romans 16, feel free to go there. First, in verse 7, Paul says these words. He says, Greet Andronicus and Junior, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Now, here's the cool thing. Junior is a woman. Junior is a female. Now, let me be honest. There's a debate around this. There is a debate around whether Junior is a male or a female. And in the 20th century, a number of Bible translators sought to argue that Junior was a male name. But here's two points, just of helpful evidence, that point in the direction of Junior being a female and not a male. One, the Latin translation, the Vulgate, from the 4th or 3rd century, I think it is. It itself, when it gives the Latin name for Junior, translates it as a female. And two, most of the Bible translations we have from before the modern period identify Junior as a female. Junior was a female, and she was an apostle. There is a, a debate again, and here, this is welcome to the conversation, welcome to church if it's your first time, um, but there is a debate again as to whether Paul means she's an apostle herself or whether she's well known to the apostles, but here's one thought that I'd offer in defense of her being identified as an apostle. It's that it'd be a pretty meaningless thing to say for Paul to identify Junior uh, as well known to the apostles. It'd be a much more meaning, meaningful thing to say from Paul, especially in a chapter where he's celebrating the ministry of women, identifying them by name, that they are indeed an apostle. And so why do I say that? I say that because the base commission of an apostle was that they saw Jesus and that they're evangelists to the world, perhaps planting churches along the way, to make the risen Christ known. And Paul identifies Junior, a female, as one of those apostles, which means Paul is not against women in leadership, women in ministry, women planting churches. He himself doesn't just permit it, he celebrates it. Junior was a female apostle. Second, Paul entrusts a very unlikely figure to deliver the book of Romans. Now, this one really struck me. I picked this up from a guy named Michael Bird. He lectures at Ridley College in Melbourne. He actually learned and taught at my alma mater, Malian College, a Baptist college, just sort of 20 minutes that way. And he was reflecting on the letter bearer of the book of Romans. But before I share who that was, let's just think about what the book of Romans is. The book of Romans is addressed to a group of house churches made up of Jews and made up of Gentiles. It was a strategic location and Paul intended to use Rome as his missionary base to take the gospel forward to places like Spain and the broader West. It was strategic. On top of that, you've got all these different diverse people groups asking questions about how this Jewish Messiah unifies them as different people with different backgrounds. It wasn't just strategic, it was theological and political. That's what Paul's writing into. It's a, it's a letter with high stakes. And here's the thing, he can't go there himself. He can't. So who does he send? Well, if you've read the book of Acts, you'll know that Paul's got a good buddy in, in Barnabas. He's got a good buddy in John Mark. He could send them. If you've read 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 1, if you've read uh, Titus, you'll know that Paul's got a bit of a protege in Timothy. He could send Timothy. Why doesn't Paul send anyone? Great question. History doesn't answer it for us, but who does Paul send? Paul sends, verse 1, Phoebe. He says, I commend to you the deacon Phoebe. Now, imagine that you're bearing a letter on behalf of someone. And you take it to that group of people. And it's the book of Romans. Imagine what it's like to read Romans for the first time in history. It's dense. It's theologically rich. 
And what's your reaction? My reaction is this. What does this mean? What does the faithfulness of God mean? How does Jesus fulfill this role as Davidic Messiah and King? You've got questions. And here's, here's the real question that I want to ask as someone in the 21st century. Who is placed to answer those questions? And this is Mike Bird's argument. Mike's, Mike Bird's argument is this, that from what we know of first century letter bearers, Phoebe is the one Paul trusts to be the one who answers those questions when they're brought up. Phoebe is the one that Paul trusts to answer those questions when they're brought up. Now, here's why that's big. It's big because we call that exegesis. We call that biblical interpretation. And Paul doesn't just commission, doesn't just permit, he celebrates and gives room for the ministry and the leadership of women, particularly when it comes to looking at and expounding upon the scriptures. That's what we get from Phoebe. Junior, Phoebe, Paul's ministry friends and co-laborers. But third, here's the kicker for me, it's the ministry of Jesus. One of the famous stories from the Gospels is the story of um, Jesus dining with Mary and Martha. And it's from Luke 10. And the scenario is this. You've got uh, Jesus sitting, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, and you've got Martha in the kitchen, basically fulfilling the traditional expectations for her to be a housemaker and get the food ready and that kind of thing in that society. That's where Martha is. And Martha's freaking out. She's like, there's a pot roast in the oven, I've got things to get done, and Mary's just chilling. And so Martha complains to Jesus, and Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, I can see that you're concerned about a lot of things, but one thing's necessary, indeed only one, and Mary's chosen that which is good. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And what's Mary doing? Well, verse 39 says, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, two things. One, the way this typically gets preached is people will say, it's basically like a ruthless elimination of hurry plug, right? People will say, don't be a Martha. Don't be busy when Jesus wants you just to sit and worship and be present. Be a person of peace and calm, and that's where God is, and the quiet spirit. It's not what this passage is about. Although that might be an extended way to apply this passage, it's not why it's primarily in the Gospels. How do we know what this passage is for? And the answer is we need to find, and it's, it's here, we need to find where a similar statement is made in the corpus that Luke writes. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And there's one other time another person is commended for sitting at the feet of another. And it's in Luke, it's in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. And it's Paul. Here's what Paul says. Verse 3, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Paul, jump back in the first century with me, friends. Paul is a, is a disciple of Gamaliel the rabbi. And the point of discipleship was not that you'd just be a disciple in a general way so you could pass the theology exam. The point of discipleship, if you were called to it, was that you would be, learn in such a way that it opens up the possibility that you yourself could become a rabbi. How do we know that? We know that because not everyone was called to be a disciple, which is why it's astounding that Jesus calls 12 random tradesmen, right? Discipleship was a big call, which means Jesus commends Mary here, not for slowing down her life in like a John Mark Omer-esque kind of way, but for becoming a disciple with the possibility that she herself would be an authoritative teacher in the school of life that Jesus opened up. Let me put it in more familiar terms. A leader in the church. This is a story, and not just a reflection on who Jesus saw women as, it's a reflection on who Jesus saw women could become. So what's the point? The point is that the weight of biblical evidence points in the direction 
of celebrating, commissioning, and calling women in church leadership at all echelons of the life of the church. Dorothy Say is the 20th century English novelist and poet. She was reflecting on the way that Jesus in his ministry interacted with women. And she said this. She said, perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this one. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arc jokes about them, never treated them as, oh, the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. That's Jesus. And that's Jesus ministering in the life of women, calling, equipping, and freeing them and celebrating them for all that they bring to the kingdom of God. So this is point one. Just as we realize that we're sweating more than we want to, this is point one. But how do we apply it? Three quick thoughts. These are just my meditations. But one, I think it means we need to look for women in the Bible. As I've come to read and appreciate and discover the stories of women ministering in the Bible, I've realized how selectively blind I've been. And I would just encourage us, look for the ministry of women in the scriptures. The blanket point is that they're there. They're there. Two, we need to honor the women in our midst. When Kath and I were sort of first contemplating and discerning whether we wanted to pastor and be in ministry in New Life, we went to Rabina, New Life HQ, as they call it, and we spent a bit of time there one Sunday morning. And it was the Genesis series, and that week someone was unpacking Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always found this passage quite elusive. I've always been like, why does God judge one more harshly than the other? That makes no sense. But this person got up that week, and she'd spent her week studying, particularly looking at Jewish tradition around this story, and she unpacked in a way that was so helpful and illuminating the meaning of that story, and it helped me see Jesus and worship God. And that person was Anna Kustin. She's our small groups pastor on the Gold Coast. We need to honor the women in our midst. Another person, a few Sundays ago, we had an incredible Sunday. I did nothing that week, but that week someone got up, it was a vision Sunday, and they preached on the cost of discipleship. They opened up Mark chapter 8, where, God said, where, where um, the writer says, and Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, they must take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. And Lauren Andrus, she preached an incredible sermon inviting our community to take Jesus seriously and to follow after him, paying the cost that we each need to, no matter how that intersects with our life and what we hold dear. And it was beautiful. And God used her. And God does use her. And God uses women. We should honor the women in our midst. And the last thing is we should just pray for the future of our church. This is something that we fundamentally believe as a church. And one of the really interesting things to sort of take a cross-section of is right now we've got three locations, Brisbane, Coolangatta, and Rabina. And those in leadership at those locations are men. And hear me, we make no apologies for that. This beautiful thing that God's called and equipped men to lead. But if this is something we take seriously, then my invitation to us would be just to pray that if there is a woman in our midst, if there's a woman across our family of churches, that God might raise her up, equip her, and give her the encouragement she needs to be the kind of person who themselves could maybe plant a church one day. What a beautiful thing that would be. That might sound like a long way off. Might be. Doesn't need to be. So we should partner with God in praying for people in our church, men and women that we might see the gospel go forward in this way. So one, the pool of biblical evidence. And two, 
a passage which I reread in context. This part's smaller time-wise, but it's probably more dense, so just, you know, roll with me, eh? Um, we'll be out of here soon, I promise. Um, here's the thing. Most people will agree with sort of three quarters of what I've said so far. They'll say, yeah, women can be in leadership in a general way, but God surely he reserves ordained ministry and eldership for men. Um, and the reason people think this is because it seems like Paul says that exact thing in two places in Scripture. Let me reference them for us. The two passages are 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 to 38, and 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 15. And so we need to deal with them. And I want to do that for us today, and I want to pick one. And because of time, I'm going to pick the easiest one. No, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'm going to pick what I actually think is the hardest one, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 15. So reading from the ESV, let me go from verse 11, it says this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. I always get weirded out about this verse, but if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Huge, huge passage. It appears to say that no woman can ever teach or have authority over a man. And if you're unsure about Paul's argument, he goes to the, you know, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and he seems to bolster his argument by drawing like this universal principle from it. Um, and here's what he seems to suggest. He seems to suggest that women cannot teach the Bible because Eve, and hence all women, are more susceptible to deception, that in short, uh, women cannot speak in, teach authoritatively over, or lead local churches. That's what this seems to say. Now, here's what a lot of people, there's sort of three reactions you can have to this text, and there's scholars that do each of these reactions. One is to tear it out and argue that Paul didn't write 1 Timothy. People do that. The other is to transplant it, uh, take it from its context and put it into our context. Um, But the other is to translate it. The other is to translate, and that's our task. Because at face value, this is how I used to read the text, at face value, a plain reading of the text suggests that this is the best way to read it. I'll acknowledge that. Why do I think differently now? Four, four things that have helped me read this text with nuance and in a way that's helped me, I guess, think different about it. First thing is this. Um, I came to see that there's no such thing as a plain reading of the Bible. No such thing. A plain reading of the Bible is just a reading of the Bible that doesn't do the hard work of thinking through the context behind a passage that you're reading. And all of us come to the Bible with a lens. For example, the lens that we're coming to 1 Timothy 2 right now with is this. Can women lead in the church? What if that's not the question that Paul's addressing here? It'd change the way you read it. Still hard to wrestle with, but it just acknowledges the fact that we all come to the Bible with a lens, and we need to think through the context behind the passage, otherwise we'll read our context into it. Our job is not to take the Bible at face value or plainly. Our job is to take the Bible seriously. And sometimes that means, depending on the genre, taking it plainly. Other times that means thinking through the context behind the passage in a nuanced way. Second, I came to see that verse 12 is just crazily difficult to translate. Um, See, Paul says this in the ESV, this is how it translates it, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. But that word, exercise authority, it comes from a Greek word that's not used anywhere else in the Bible, and its uses by ancient literature around the same time is incredibly rare, which means the pool of resources we have to try and come up with some dictionary definition of what this term is is really, really difficult. doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means we should be very tentative 
with what we conclude about it. But here's where scholarship divides. On one end of the spectrum, you've got people who think that Paul's saying something positive here. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who say, think that Paul's saying something negative. A positive translation claims that Paul is saying this to women, don't have authority over men. A negative translation claims that Paul is saying this to women, don't take authority from men. Um, an extensive work, you know, and scholarship literally divides on this, and we just need to be honest about that because I would hate for someone to walk away from this thinking that I misrepresented one side and just plugged my own. Scholarship divides. But an extensive word study was done, and still gets done, this is so debated, still gets done um, on this particular word, and it's been found that though uses from, I think, the second century onwards are positive, a number of uses of verbs that are related to this one themselves are negative, which gives us both evidence to say, within the context of the larger pool of biblical evidence, that this is not a positive statement, it is indeed a negative statement, which is why the NIV, the KJV, the CEB, the Geneva Bible, they all translate this in a negative way. The NIV says this, I do not permit a woman to assume authority over a man. The KJV says, I do not permit a woman to usurp authority from a man. Now, this is important because it suggests that the problem is not that women have authority. It suggests that the problem is women usurping already established distributed authority. And they're very different. One's contextual, another is not. So the question is, is there evidence to suggest this? Three, I came to appreciate that the study done on the context behind the letter gives us recourse by which to say that we, it probably is a local letter addressing local problems, not a universal one. Um, Paul is writing to the Ephesian churches, and what we know about Ephesus is, from the first century is that it was home to the cult of Artemis. And recently, someone's actually done their PhD work on this. I, I, this is way more dense than I actually intended, so here we are. Um, someone's done their PhD work on this, looking at a novel that survives from the first century that talks about the cult of Artemis. And the big thing we know about the cult of Artemis is that it's a female-only cult, which means if you're a dude, you can't be in the cult of Artemis, and you especially can't be in leadership. You can't be a dude in the cult of Artemis. And Christianity comes to town. The temple starts losing those who are faithful to it. Those who were faithful to it would have been women, highly educated, high-status women, and they move from the temple into house churches, and here's what they assume. They assume that they can teach and lead by virtue of their status without having first undergone the training and teaching and discipleship and learning that everyone who wants to be called into leadership would have to go through. Now, this is important because... Um, even one of the heresies that were spreading was that women were superior to men. This, this document from the PhD, you can ask me for it, I'll send it to you. It unpacks it. But here's the point. Contextually, Paul is most likely writing to ex-cult women who are not simply trying to usurp authority in the church, they're trying to denigrate and demote men. That's the context. That's the most likely historically probable case. And finally, this is the big one for me. I was chatting to someone at Cool and Gather this morning after my sermon. This is actually the big thing for me. Uh, and it's how Paul uses the creation story. See, Paul's use of the creation story, we assume that he's appealing to creation to extract this universal principle. And that principle is that women are more easily deceived than men. That's how, that's how you have to break that down, if that's what you think Paul's doing. That they're more easily deceived than men, so they shouldn't teach. The problem with this is that Paul doesn't use the story of Adam and Eve in the same way each time he writes contextual letters. Uh, and so, before we conclude on how Paul is using the story of Adam and Eve here, we should just think comparatively about how Paul uses the story of Eve in other passages. And there's one that really, really stands out. 
Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul's writing to men in Corinth and women in Corinth. It's a broad letter to everyone in the church, and he says this. He says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, this is actually a complex thought, but go with it. He uses the model of Eve as a model of deception, and he talks to men and women in Corinth to encourage them not to follow after Eve. Paul applies the model of Eve locally. He doesn't extract a universal principle from her story. That doesn't mean he doesn't do that elsewhere, but it means we go to the story in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 to 15, we know the background, we know the context, we know the debate around the terms, and Paul says, hold on, don't be an Eve. Don't be an Eve. Not to women in general, but to the Ephesian women in particular. He's humbling, arrogant, self-assuming women who want to demote and denigrate Man, Nijay Gupta, a New Testament scholar, he put it like this. He said, the mentioning of Eve's deception by Paul is his way of humbling any arrogant Ephesian women who want to cause trouble for the men, believing that they were wiser. That was the kicker for me. And it helped me open up and follow the pool of biblical evidence where it leads. What's the point? The point is that this letter was not written to outline a church hierarchy that exists across all times and places, with men at the top and women everywhere else. It's a contextual letter that Paul writes to address problems. And there's a big difference there, which means there's nothing in this passage which should alter our course as championing and celebrating women at all levels of church leadership in life for the sake of the gospel, the good of the church, and the glory of God. There's nothing in this passage that would lean us that way. So one, the pool of biblical evidence, and two, a passage which I learned to read in context. This has been a big journey for me. Some of you, this could be the cherry on the icing of the cake that you've been sort of journeying with for a while, but for others of you, this could be like, you know, quite, I don't know, stirring, quite difficult to digest. Um, I'd love to, I started by sort of talking about the different reactions each of us could have as I start to address this question, but can I finish just by articulating a number of ways that we might respond? Because here's the point that I'm actually trying to communicate today. This should change what we imagine to be possible. Someone asked me this morning, what's the practical outworking of your sermon? This, what's the vision you have for the church? We're not talking about equal, you know, equal opportunity. We're not talking about quotas. We're not talking about being on the right side of history or being politically correct. We're talking about following, following the scriptures where they lead and stepping into the model and the trajectory that the scriptures give vision for throughout the pages of the New Testament in particular. And so my question is, what about us, New Life? What about us as a church? Is this something we're not just for, as in we give permission for it, but don't want to talk about it? Or is this something we're for in a way that we celebrate, honor, and cast out prayers for that we might have the imagination to see it through? Is that what we're doing? And my prayer is that the answer would be yes. What about us this afternoon? And so can I just invite you to stand? And as, I, as you stand, I'd love to invite the band up. And I just want to be really honest, this is something I've wrestled with for a long time. And sure, I've got more wrestling, each of us do. But the more that I read the scriptures, and the more I hear stories of women, particularly women who've been held back in their gifting and their leadership, the more this breaks my heart. Because there's a vision here. 
And that vision is a result of what God, by His Spirit, wants to do in the world. There's a vision here. And my heart breaks at the prospect of people not feeling freed up to outwork their giftings and their leadership and the things that God's deposited in them by His Spirit for the sake of this church, for the sake of the world, and for their own joy in following Jesus. So it breaks my heart, and I've had to change and repent along the way a lot. But let me just articulate a number of ways that we might respond this afternoon as we think about this question, women in leadership, where this church is going, and ultimately what we're hoping and praying for. You might have heard this sermon this afternoon, and you might think, did you, you know, Alex, did you really think you could convince me in 40 minutes? And my answer is no. No, not if you're someone who thinks deeply about this. This might have just start, started a conversation for you today. And response for you would be this. Just keep an eye out for a resource that I'm developing with the other location pastors around this. Um, we want to take this conversation further with you because this is something we care deeply about and something we want to think robustly in. We don't want to shy away from it. So that might be you. But there's two other really important um, sort of responses you might have this afternoon. Um, you know, I said before that as I've thought about this topic more, I've, I've come to realize that I, both intentionally and unintentionally, have been the cause of holding women back. And that's a serious thing. And God's prescription for that revelation is just repentance. And so if you're here this afternoon, male or female, there's going to be a prayer team down the front, my right, your left. I'd invite you to repent. We did this in New Life Rabina last week, and it was just beautiful to see men and women all come forward, receiving prayer, praying to God, repenting and confessing. And if this is something on which you need to repent, I would invite you to do so. And if that is you, I'll be there with you. Others, though, a response for you right now would be to dream. What would it look like if there was no biblical reason, no impetus from the church sort of leadership structure to hold you back from outworking your gifting for the glory of God? What would that look like? You need to dream today, sisters. And maybe you've been in this world, you've been in the church world, and you sense the ceiling, not because of your character, not because of your gifting, but because of your gender. And today, God would just say, be free. Be free to dream. Be free to think through what he might be birthing in your heart by his spirit for the sake of the world. And we want to partner with you in prayer over that. And we want to commission you today. Because again, as I said at the start, we fundamentally believe that God's mission in the world calls and equip both men and women so that God's mission would outreach to the nations, give glory to God and bless his people. So why don't you close your eyes? If you want to, feel free to open your hands. Think through how God might be speaking to you, even in this moment. And if you want to come forward for prayer, as I begin to pray, just do so. Be bold. Be brave. This is a moment. This is a significant moment in the life of our church. And I'd ask you, don't miss it. Don't miss it. And so let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, that you, because of your mission in the world, because of your kingdom coming and breaking in, you're calling both men and women 
to participate in all levels of church life, leadership, teaching, preaching, discipleship, learning, all levels of church life for the sake, not just of your church, not just of our joy, but your glory and the blessing to the world. And so I pray, Father, this afternoon, release us. Release us from the expectations we put on ourselves. Release us from the sense of disqualification that we lay over ourselves. Father, help us repent when we need to, whether intentionally by virtue of the way we walk into a church and hone straight for men because we think that they're more spiritual or unintentionally in the way that we share jokes. Help us repent today, Father. And God, would you help us just as a church family, dream, support, walk together through in love and unity that we might be a people of such diversity and unity called together under the leadership and love of Jesus Christ. For it's in your name we pray.